0: Contrology. Pilates. The method, the work. However you want to describe it, it is the brainchild of German creator and inventor, Joe Pilates. Hello everybody, I'm Darian Gold. Thank you so much for joining us on All Things Pilates. Did you know the human brain is the fattiest organ in the body? Who knew? Well, let's find out more about the brain with our guest today, Dr. Nick Butowski. He's a neuro-oncologist who researches brain disease and is a Pilates devotee. Dr. Nick says we hold psychological and physical tension in our fascia and in the way we move. By practicing the Pilates method regularly, Dr. Nick's own daily stress is alleviated, especially by using the breath correctly. Practicing the Pilates method focuses so much attention on the physical body, mastering our technique, learning transitions, balancing on one leg, etc. But is the brain involved also? I've asked Dr. Nick to explain to all of us Pilates devotees. How the brain functions during exercise. Dr. Nick Butowski is a full professor in the neurological surgery department at UCSF. Though his specialty is researching and studying brain cancer, today we're focusing on brain health and if the Pilates method is a key factor in maintaining
1: a healthy brain. Hello,
0: Dr. Nick Butowski. Welcome to All Things Pilates.
1: Hi, Darian. Thanks for having me. It's a distinct pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, thank you. Dr. Nick, how long have you been practicing Pilates?
1: I started my Pilates habit in 2008 after I ruptured my Achilles, required surgery, and then a better way to rehab. My wife... Uh, dragged me to a Pilates class upon months of complaining to her that I (laughs) couldn't get the strength back in my calf and leg. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Pilates proved itself to allow me to not only get the power and flexibility in my leg back, but to unpretzel myself in general, such that I was able to return to playing soccer at a fairly high level.
0: Did you... Let any of your soccer player mates know about your rehab, because sometimes the athletic world, sometimes they have been a little behind the eight ball.
1: I didn't at first, in all honesty. uh, It was such a a female dominated environment (laughs) uh, when I first went in. It certainly improved that. I didn't I did not want to get made fun of all the time by the guys oh my on my goodness. my team. But eventually, probably within a good year or so, uh, I, I do think not only did I tell people, but was advocating for others to join uh, as as others not only got hurt and needed to recover from their own injuries, but also as a way of clearly and efficiently exercising. Uh, there's no workout like a chair workout, a Pilates chair workout. And as I came to really understand that, as I got better at the exercises, it was, was clear to me that my friends and teammates could benefit from the same.
0: And did you re- remind your teammates and friends that Mr. Pilates was a mister?
1: I did. <laughs> uh, it didn't really matter. I think, you know, it depends on how you, I think, get started in Pilates and what studio you go to, who's your first teacher, who's in class with you. To date, the best class I ever took probably wasn't the best teacher necessarily. It was the best people in class who pushed the teacher. It it ended up being three male male ballet dancers that really pushed the envelope in this class. Um, And I loved that. But, you know, you go to a different class and, and the teacher's style would change altogether.
0: That's a really good point for sure. Now, in the opening, I talked about what you said, that we hold psychological and physical tension in our fascia and also in our daily movement habits. Can you explain what the difference is between fascia and the muscles?
1: Sure. So your muscles are the soft tissue that produces force and motion, while fascia is the the densely woven connective tissue that that stabilizes and penetrates every muscle, bone, nerve, vessel, uh, internal organs, and is one relatively large sweater that holds us and embraces us. It also, though, does store power and flexibility within it. And as such, when we suffer from either physical or emotional trauma, anything that causes inflammation, the fascia loses its pliability, either from getting too tight or potentially too loose as well.
0: Can you say more about inflammation?
1: Sure. So trauma itself, physical trauma, be it surgery, be it an injury, uh, is going to cause the need to repair, and inflammatory cells get into that area of need of that's in need of repair to sort of clean it out and rebuild it. And obviously, as we get older, that process becomes a little less efficient, and you get extra tissue or extra cells that stay in the area that tend to make for tightness in and of itself from a physical perspective. But often uh, from a psychological perspective, people tend to brace within the area of injury, and therefore the surrounding musculature, the surrounding fascia tends to become tight as well. And then that's when you wear that uh, tension pattern in your daily movements often without being very physically aware of it.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about this inflammatory component, not just because of my own situation that I have had to deal with, but the body as we age doesn't have the ability to rid itself of inflammation. Is that true?
1: That's true, yeah. It it builds up, so to speak, uh, and becomes a less efficient process of clearing out. When you're a child and uh, you have uh, cells that are just sort of more, or literally younger and more ready to to come in and and replace cells that have been injured or died off, it's much easier in process than when you're older and simply have less ability to do that in terms of less cells and a less efficient process with age.
0: So this is underneath when people talk about not wanting to get older. It's really the processes of the body that start to slow down, not just what we are on the outside.
1: Absolutely, both from a, aging is more of a physical phenomenon in in many ways than it is an actual psychological phenomenon. Although I th- do think that. From a psychological perspective, one can, can remain young in mind as well uh, by being less rigid uh, and more open to different things, the same way your your body can remain open and less rigid if you take proper care of it.
0: And that takes discipline to let yourself be open.
1: Absolutely. You have to cultivate both flexibility and stability of mind and flexibility and stability of your body.
0: Yes, well said. The brain, is it always communicating with the body? And if so, how is it? Yes. Is that too broad of a question?
1: No, it's it's it is always communicating with the body, but I think to to make it somewhat Sesame Street simple, it communicates on a, a few different levels. One is the visceral or automatic level where you don't have to think about it or provide any conscious effort, right? You don't have to tell your Brain to have your heart beat or your lungs breathe, so to speak. But then there's conscious or volitional control over you know, movement and such. So your body and mind, or mind can communicate on that level. And there's probably shades of gray beneath them where you get onto an automatic pilot mode or what's called in the brain the default mode network, where just like riding a bike, you can pop on and not necessarily have to think about it once you know how to. So there's movement patterns that get stored. But there's also thought patterns that get stored too.
0: And that's maybe where we get in more trouble. If the thought patterns are not healthy and life affirming.
1: Absolutely. We all suffer from what I call the the thought domino peril, which is that one thought can crash into another, like two dominoes can crash into one another as one domino falls and the other. Onto the other, and if you're not aware of that phenomenon, then whatever your automatic pilot is, whatever your default mode network is, takes over, especially in times of stress uh, or in times when you're simply don't have the energy to pay uh, more conscious attention to the present moment.
0: Speaking of awareness, will you explain what proprioception is and why do we need it, or do we need it?
1: Yeah, well, we certainly need proprioception. Sure, proprioception is really just the perception or awareness of position and movement in the body and classically involves knowing cognitively where your limbs or body is in space without having to look at it, but it also does take visual function as well uh, as vision plays a big role in planning body movements. And then to some degree, what's called cerebellar function, where again, body movements, patterns of movement are stored and become automatic, just like riding a bike. So all of that is incorporated into appropriate reception.
0: That that leads me to another question about visual and about the actual eyes and what the movement of the eyes and is it important to use our eyes while we are In our workouts, because I know in my studio past years, I would have students come to me and they just kept their eyes closed the whole time. That's a whole other animal in terms of trying to figure out where they were coming from in terms of why they always had to keep their eyes closed. But is their proprioception different? So if they're on the reformer and their eyes are closed and they're doing footwork, they're getting the signals just based on what they're feeling in their feet and their their back on the carriage, right? It's not like they're looking around.
1: Yeah. In that case, I think the visual input may be getting in the way of their ability to perform the exercise correctly because if they're looking at the ceiling and they that cue is that visual cue of looking at the ceiling is somewhat telling their default mode network or conscious brain even that they should be moving in a different way because they're lying down rather than standing up then that gets in the way of them you know being able to do a footwork movement that's not typical of their daily habit right and so you will find that even athletes will take their vision uh, or close their eyes during some movements in order to sort of just be in the moment in the flow and benefit from the tactile stimulus that is needed to produce the movement in and of itself especially if the movement's new uh, that being said one of the things i like about you and good teachers is that you you teach us where we should be looking while performing a, an exercise and you know where your eye should be uh, can actually help you perform the exercise correctly right where you should be looking and greatly help with you performing you know putting your feet in the right direction or your hips in the right direction and i often when getting correction from me or, or from whomever, <laughs> think to myself, where should I be looking if I'm not fully present? And often I'm I'm looking off into the distance or something like that, and and that interferes with not only being present in the movement, but often interferes with probably some other body automatic habit that you know my my limbs want to do, but is simply not what's meant to be in the Pilates movement.
0: It's still staying on the proprioceptive. Uh, path right now. People who are not very coordinated, do they lack proprioception or why do they lack coordination in the first place?
1: Sure. I think coordination is obviously somewhat dependent on your body habitus and, you know, what traits you were born with being tall, short, fast, slow, that type of thing. However, I think it's more of a skill rather than a character trait, so to speak. And if you've not moved around a lot during your life, then taking up Pilates or anything uh, movement wise at age 40 or even 20 is, is going to be a little bit more challenging and you'll come across as less coordinated. However, with practice, just like anything else, the skill can be further refined and obviously in the hands of a good teacher that takes into account The complexity of such movement, again, with regard to not just proprioception, where your limbs should be in space, but where you should be looking, how you should be moving, how to be present uh, in that movement and make it part of your sort of automatic daily habit. I found that by practicing Pilates frequently, it has helped me realize where my limbs should be in space and doing such simple things as walking, let alone playing soccer uh, and how to move more efficiently.
0: I was going to ask you if there is a particular exercise in the Pilates work that when you first learned it, you had no idea where your limbs were and what that experience was like for you. Hopefully that you figured it out just by practice, as you're saying, and becoming more aware of where your body is in space. But can you think of an exercise that you just you couldn't figure it out?
1: Yeah, I mean, the most simple is actually sideline legwork on the mat. Sidekick series. Yeah, where your hips are supposed to be stable while you're moving, you know, the leg either back and forth or or up and down, and, you know, the the bottom leg is sort of glued to the mat. I still have room to go in terms of both flexibility, length, and strength, uh, especially with my left side, but I have only... Now, gotten to where my, I think it's my psoas, no longer clicks on the left. Uh, Nice. And that that was dependent on, I think, coming to a very deep understanding of where my pelvis is in space, right? Which I, it's taken me quite some time to understand.
0: Yes. And then you can apply that understanding with other exercises, not lying on your side, maybe standing.
1: Absolutely. Even sitting, um, and, and knowing that if I spend too long in a slouched position that I'll pay for it later. And I I know that sounds overly simple, but in our modern day society where we spend so much time sitting, I, I love that Pilates has made my body aware to tell my mind, Hey, you're slouching. Stop it. Um, rather than depending on simply a, a top down cognitive approach to knowing that i shouldn't slouch it's my body actually also talking to my mind saying uh uh-uh, uh what you're doing uh, is not correct please please fix it or you'll be in pain later
0: so it is a two way conversation back and forth
1: absolutely and i, I think our society is more open to that that our body is a is a repository of, of all of our life and can talk back to the mind and let us know where we've been, perhaps as importantly, where we are in space uh, and how that compares to where we might want to be.
0: I've been hearing a lot about neuroplasticity. Can you explain what it is and why we need it?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, so, neuroplasticity or, or, or brain plasticity per se is the ability of your neural networks to change and reorganize, if not to some degree grow with time and, and of course, age. It used to be that we thought that this only happened in, in younger folks, but now we know that cortical remapping can happen at any age.
0: What kind and- of remapping?
1: Cortical, uh sorry, yeah cortical your cortex is the outer part of your brain. so brain remapping can take place at any at any age but it does require a stimulus, so to speak, right? A, a, a new skill that you're trying to learn, a new ability, some type of environmental influence or thought that requires the, the brain remapping itself. So if psychological stress, psychological calmness, but also, you know, riding a bike, as I said, taking up a new sport, learning Pilates can also lead to this neural network reorganization at any point in time in life. It becomes more difficult as we get older. I still think this is a debatable point as to why we we feel that children and younger people have sort of more plasticity, just like they have more flexibility because of being young, but it also might be because they're more open to possibility as well psychologically mm-hmm. and the older you get sometimes the more rigid your default mode network gets uh, as you you know get stuck in habits
0: so your advice would be continue to learn new ideas or new activities that challenge the brain than neuro pathways.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a big six. And I always tell my patients that how they can augment their care is a big six and I can list them, but one of the big six is definitely novelty or creativity that you must push the envelope with. It's also what I joke with my patients about is, is what I call the remote control creativity or novelty pathway, which is that I remember. When my youngest son was about two, he was obsessed with the remote control for the TV. And it was a great tool to teach him numbers and to count uh, and to even learn to spell some of the words on the remote control. So if you take something that you are totally interested in and that you find novel, you can learn certain cognitive and physical skills from it. And then you can take into other areas of your life. It's a huge part of of neuroplasticity and, and remapping your brain. So you, you know, what that means is if you like to read. Fiction, we need
0: hobbies, we need, yeah, we need
1: absolutely. new hobbies. You need, that's why art's so important, but it also means you have to go into areas where you might not be completely comfortable. And, and sure. we live in a society of mastery where we, we think we have to master something quickly, but that's not the point of life. And it's not, right. what, it's not what your brain truly wants. You There is a novelty drive a creativity drive that you must and should feed yourself to be healthy.
0: And speaking of food, are there any particular foods that are fantastic for the brain and brain health?
1: Well, I have my I have very strong opinions on the subject. I should comment I'm I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist, but I've my my wife's been vegan for 20 years, and and I'm a vegetarian, so. I do think that for brain health, there are foods you can concentrate on that are rich in antioxidants that reduce cellular stress and inflammation. And uh, those foods tend to be like oil, oily fish, uh, but also within the veggie world, dark chocolate, berries, mm. uh, nuts, whole grains, even coffee to some degree, and you know everything in moderation, of course. Uh, can provide the nutrients that your brain needs, but also the nutrients that suppress the inflammation of of everyday use.
0: Okay, so we're back to the inflammation. There are certain foods that promote inflammation and other foods that don't. And we want foods that promote healthy brain function. So that plays a role in, in our diet choices.
1: Correct. I think obviously diet's a complex issue. And I think in modern day society, uh, we tend to think we're eating healthily if we're eating you know, vegetables and salads all the time. But if you're also not eating in season and in the correct pairings, so to speak, then you may also be missing some of the benefits, not just nutritionally in terms of calories and proteins and fats and, and carbohydrates, but also in the anti-inflammation Quality of some food, so you know you shouldn't eat blackberries just because I said berries were anti-inflammatory. You shouldn't eat blackberries all year round. You should still try to eat eat in season, and that helps with other functions like immune mimicry to fight off disease, uh, to boost your immune system in ways where it gets little bits and pieces or little bits of exposure over time to different types of proteins, but doesn't get suppressed by eating them all the time. But then there are there are foods like, you know, for me, for dark chocolate, mm. it does not only lead to anti-inflammatory properties, but it actually provides some chemicals that make brain cells, neurons, uh, uh, bind tighter together. And so that makes for more efficient work of your brain, uh, believe it or not. same Same with coffee. I mean, most people will have a direct and clear experience with caffeine providing the same. Of course... There is a point at which it becomes uh, un- unhealthy.
0: Why did you choose to research and study brain disease?
1: Yeah, I uh, was obsessed as a child because I have a condition called um, where I wake up in my sleep and I can't move. So, sleep paralysis. And it runs in my family on my mom's side. And my mom took me to a neurologist as a child and well, my mom, what I what I had and what I suffer from in front of me. And I remember thinking, that's it? <laughs> What's the management strategy here? Uh, and remember thinking, oh, I can do better than that. Um, so that led me into my initial interest into just understanding more about how our brains work. Beyond that, uh, I think my thirst to just sort of know um, psychologically how we worked or how people work. Uh, led me into neuroscience in in undergrad, and then uh, I wanted to be a behavioral neurologist, which is taking care of patients with dementia or other related neuropsychological conditions. But when I started taking care of patients, I found culturally that I fit more in a in a cancer environment where it was a more rewarding. A phenomenon because patients when faced with serious illness and still in, you know, with their cognition intact, tend to really get life at a level that rubs off on you uh, as a caregiver and caretaker that makes you not sweat the small stuff. So it made me into a better person. And I didn't find that as easy in other areas of neurology.
0: Did you ever write about that? Any of those experiences?
1: I have in essays for a variety of publications that are medically based in the past. And I've always saying I'm going to write a book about it, but I haven't done so yet. My, my kids came along and occupied my time otherwise.
0: Well, a book is in your future for sure. One hopes. I was curious if any of your patients, as they are healing or not healing, would they practice Pilates or have they in the past?
1: Yes. A lot of my patients suffer from neurologic injury from having their tumors removed from brain or spine and uh, develop some wicked compensation patterns in terms of movement around them. And the spine patients who, whose prognosis tend to be better in terms of overall survival are very motivated to do Pilates uh, as a way to recover and rehab what they can and to maintain function uh, because it's not only about building function for those patients, but maintaining power and motor function and gait balance. So a lot of my spine patients you know, do do Pilates. The brain patients, it's a more complex phenomenon that often involves uh, some cognitive patterning as well. But they do uh, often find Pilates to be helpful. Uh, there's still this bridge between physical therapy and Pilates that needs to be built. Uh, I feel where it's covered by insurance because obviously when patients get diagnosed with with brain cancer, their whole financial landscape changes. Um, But the patients who have the means, certainly I'd say the overwhelming majority actually end up uh, doing Pilates as a way to efficiently exercise and and, and a, a way to safely do it around their deficits, but that also helps them with the deficits.
0: And do you check in with those patients regularly? And they are—would you consider them success stories just based on adding a resistance training program like Pilates to help them maintain the health that they have now?
1: Yeah, I've I've been known to to send some videos to patients of of exercises that I've done myself uh, prior to COVID, and patients who live in the in the Bay Area to a variety of studios in the area. With specific referrals to teachers and you know, requests of working on specific things, and frankly, uh, though I apologize to physical therapists listening to this, I I'd say my patients have found their relationship with their Pilates instructor to be much more beneficial long-term um, than the than the rehab they get in the physical therapy world, and, and there are many reasons for that, but. Um, oh
0: i that there's a paper right there
1: definitely but I, I think that has to do with how physical therapists um get reimbursed and how their focus of their practices tend to be on orthopedics rather than neurologic injury
0: that's interesting and and would you would you couple that with the whole body opposed to specific areas
1: oh yeah Absolutely. There's just like I found with physical therapy, you know, I I would go in with my Achilles and they would focus on, you know, flexion extension of the calf, but none of the eversion inversion at my ankle, which is, you know, looking back so easily and glaringly uh, deficient, but yes. uh, And and how that worked all the way up my left leg, into my pelvis, into my back. uh, And frankly, even into, I think, right rhomboid pain that I had way back when. So yes, the whole body uh, view and taking into account, uh, you know, on a reformer where you can eliminate body weight to some degree and then move freely. uh, Yes, definitely. It helps to incorporate how an Achilles injury, for instance, can cause your right shoulder to not move properly as well.
0: Right. It's fascinating, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah, very much so, and uh, I'm glad to see that it's it's more widely accepted now than it than it had been when I started in in medicine. Is there
0: anything about the brain that continues to surprise or intrigue you?
1: I'd say my main area of continued surprise is how deeply I can cultivate my own mind through a a concurrent meditation practice uh, and how rewarding the overlap of neuroscience and uh, neuroscience exploration into meditation has been uh, in terms of how it can help with recovery from traumatic brain injury, other psychological conditions, but also in my patient population. And so that's, that's perhaps been one of the most surprising and rewarding things is the simple breath-based cultivation of attention leads to so much more than that and how that allows you as an individual but also as a scientist to know how the mind and brain are, how they work and how they're related, so to speak, if that makes sense.
0: Your patients are meditating uh, along with the treatments that they're getting, the Western treatments? Yeah, I-
1: I think I mentioned the big six, so those six are, but I never explained No, it. please do. Di- yeah, diet, exercise, sleep, novelty, stress reduction methods, and then meditation. And we go into each of those six in terms of how they all lead to better health optimization. And so I do recommend that uh, most of my patients take up a breath-based meditation habit, of uh, so to speak. And there's fairly good literature to say that for whatever reason, two 12-minute periods a day and why it's 12 and not less or more is unclear, lead to better brain functioning on many levels, not just cognitive performance in terms of speed of information processing or multitasking, but also uh, a feeling, a, you know, subjective feeling of psychological wellness and well-being. Uh, but also, they report that their movement patterns are better, uh, that they're... You know, sensory environment is better in terms of all the processing that we do on a daily basis, visually, auditory wise, what have you, even taste and what have you becomes problematic in my patient population. So it leads to this improvement. It starts as a cultivation of attention, like I said, but it leads to a great deal more that is, you know, outside of being a Buddhist monk, (laughs) Mm somewhat difficult to describe, of course.
0: Right. And... Speaking of taste and also smell, I think, you know, I've been dealing with the last symptoms of COVID. Can you explain why we lose our sense of taste or smell and will it come back? Because I miss smelling coffee in the morning. Sure.
1: So the neurons that actually are involved in taste and smell uh, are one of the few neurons that... Uh, continually turn over. They grow and and come back and then uh, die off and then come back. So uh, the virus seemingly gets into these cells as it does uh, in other potentially areas of growing body parts like your lungs and uh, will cause temporary dysfunction until those nerve cells can regenerate and come back. And nerve cells are somewhat notoriously slow at doing that and generally can take at least several weeks and often several months to fully come back and may come back in a different way where what smelled good or tasted good to you once upon a time or vice versa, no longer is the case. We, in my practice, for instance, um, there are meds, medications or radiation that we do that will make patients lose their sense of smell or taste. And within a year, typically that comes back, but often they will say, you know, I used to love the taste of tomatoes or what have you, and and now I no longer do, Um, and instead I like, you know, peaches, so uh, be prepared.
0: Would that continue to change?
1: It could, you know, taste and and smell are so tied up in our psychological well-being as well, in terms of, you know, what we associate as comfort foods, uh, you know, are tied up with our childhood or what have you, you know, the, the smell of, brownies or something like that can bring you back to where you feel safe. So yes, it can change as you also change your thought patterning behind uh, the interpretation of a certain food and and what you perceive it to be in terms of being healthy or not, right?
0: Well, to me, just listening to you today, it does seem like our brain-mind connection is both mysterious and fascinating and always teaching us something about what's possible that we don't we didn't necessarily think was possible.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of that mystery for me uh, re- results from that we as human beings think that thought is is who we are when it is not, in my opinion, it's the accumulation of sensory data, that results in the thought. And then how you interpret the thought or act on the thought or don't act on the thought is who you are. So that the mysteries lies therein.
0: I wanna thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge and also for being such a fabulous student.
1: Well, thank you for being a fabulous teacher. (laughs) You're
0: very welcome. Dr. Nick Butowski, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks very much for having me, it was a pleasure.
0: Okay, thank you. Today's feature is another one of my dedicated students. Her name is Alison Newsom, and she is a new mom living in Kent, England. When I asked Allison how Pilates has impacted her life, she said, When I returned to Pilates after giving birth, it felt like starting from scratch as a beginner. By taking my weekly Pilates classes, they have helped me regain my strength and confidence in my body. I would say in many ways, I am stronger and more connected to the practice than I was before. All Things Pilates is created, edited, produced, and hosted by me. Darien Gold, Mastered Audio Mix by Fabian Romero. Please let others know about this show, and one way you can do that is by leaving a review. For more information about the traditional approach to Pilates, please visit my website, dariengold.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Studio Darien Pilates. And remember, keep your brain nimble by eating healthy brain food and by being consistent with your mind-body practice. Join me on the next episode when I welcome Judith Green, a student of the late Nausea Corey. And who is Nausea Corey? Well, tune in and find out. See you in a couple of weeks and thanks again for listening to all things Pilates.